everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Rumcast. This is the podcast 100% dedicated to bringing you rum-focused content by talking with the people who love and shape it. My name is John Gulla, and his name is Will Hookinga, and we are your co-hosts for this here episode, and boy, do we have an interesting one for you today. That's right. But before we get to that, Will, uh, how's the holiday season started off for you so far? It's good. I like that you mentioned the holiday season because, you know, this time of year, a lot of people, they talk about Christmas miracles, holiday Mm -hmm. miracles, things like that. Well, in the spirit of American consumerism, I had what I would like to describe as a Black Friday miracle this year. Have you ever had a Black Friday miracle? I've worked many a Black Fridays, and a miracle that I've had is not working them anymore. Uh, but but tell me, what is your Black Friday miracle? So this this dovetails with uh, a, a little segment that that we trotted out a few episodes back that I like to call "What Are You Buying?" And yes. the idea is to just spotlight. You know, you and I we're we're just consumers. We're rum consumers. We're rum fans, like anyone else. We make exactly. You know, we have budgets allotted to rum. We can't buy it all, but we make right. decisions just like everyone else out there. We and we thought like it'd be talk about it a lot exactly yeah we thought it'd be fun to share some of those so i had what i'm describing as a black friday miracle where i was sitting at my computer doing a little bit of work and i got an email from pike's liquor store which is Mm -hmm. a store in new york it is one of the few that will ship alcohol to my state of tennessee so Mm -hmm. they sent an email saying that they were offering free shipping on black friday and you know Ordering alcohol, paying for shipping from New York to Tennessee, it's it's usually going to add about twenty to twenty five dollars mm-hmm. to the purchase. Yep. So, yep. you know, I'm going to take advantage of that opportunity because they have stuff at that store that I can't get around here usually. So, I pull up Pikes. I'm digging around through their rum section, searching through, and I see something that catches my eye. And John, it doesn't even have a photo of. What? This oh, rum that I'm so about to describe. It has okay. like it has like Stop. um you know how on Twitter people would describe uh new users in the past as being eggs? Like because they yes. had the egg yeah. profile. It's right. like it's it's, yeah, like, it's like the e-commerce equivalent of a Twitter egg. It's just the like <laughs> the stock like clip art yes. image, image of a bottle. coming soon. Exactly. Yeah. Image coming yeah. soon. Yeah. Um but it said it was a single barrel rum from Nissan Distillery in Martinique. And I was thinking to myself, I have not seen any single barrel offerings from this distillery in the United States in recent memory. So I copy and paste the, the, the listing into Google. And the only thing that really comes up is some mentions on some random website of the possibility of some sort of uh, special bottlings for Ed Hamilton that came from Nissan. And so I'm thinking right. to myself, is that what this is? Cause, cause Ed Hamilton isn't listed on, you know, the description for this product on Pikes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know, the clock is ticking. It's a black Friday special. I don't have all day right. to investigate this, but it's, you've got to make a decision. Uh, exactly. And so I just went for it and the full specs on this release, it is, uh, as I said, a single barrel bottling from Nissan in Martinique. This is a rum agricole. It's bottled at 57% ABV, 114 proof, aged 41 months in French uh, limousine oak. Mm. And I just went for it. It was listed at, I think, $72, which seemed like, you know, a great price to me for what that is. Yeah. And it arrived. I pulled the bottle out of the box. It said it has this lovely kind of like black and silver label 
on the bottle. Um, very attractive. And it says uh, in small writing, special bottling for Ed Hamilton. So well, there past, you go. past yeah. guest of the Rumcast podcast, Ed Hamilton. And I, I'd had some age releases from Nissan in the past, the Elevé Soubois, the, the kind of standard ones that are available all the time. But I hadn't had yeah. kind of a single barrel offering like this. And, you know, when you talk to people who are big fans of Martinique rum, this distillery comes up quite a bit. Uh, our last episode with Johan Jobello, who has spent time growing up in Martinique, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. we asked him if he could, you know, bottle a rum from any distillery, like, right away without hesitating, he was like, Nissan, <laughs> but it's so good, like, it's going to be hard for me to ever get any. Yeah. So, I was really excited about this, and let me tell you, like, the, the rum has lived up to the excitement, oh, which is awesome. why I call it a Black Friday miracle. I mean, this yeah. is... When it comes to aged agricoles, this is where, you know, sometimes when you have these, it feels like the oak just kind of like becomes the star of the show and takes over all of that kind of agricole character that, mm-hmm. you know, you get in the the unaged version. And this to me is just like that, that perfect marriage of like the, the, the youthful character, but tempered and married and a sum that's uh, a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts um that's yeah. kind of come together in this barrel and uh it's 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 just fantastic and anyway so if you can find this near you i i all i can say is that i am super pleased with it and uh really happy to have stumbled upon this this small yeah. black friday miracle that is awesome. Well, first of all, kudos to you for buying that sight unseen. Thank you. I yeah, mean, I just went for who it. Who buys things on the internet with no picture? I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Will Hooking Good does. Well, I've um, had good experiences with Pikes, so shout out to Pikes. You know, they, yeah, Pikes they, is awesome. They ship I on like time. Pikes. Stuff always arrives safe and sound. Um, yes. So yeah, I took a leap of faith, and they delivered. They really are good. I, I enjoy them uh, as, as an online retailer for, for uh, everything as well. And they ship to Florida too. So awesome. Um, but yeah, the second thing I was going to say is you, you're fancy because I love when we describe things in terms of aging in months, 41 months. That is a nice way to describe it. Well, is that on the bottle that way too? That's what they choose on the label, Super which cool. is why I said yeah. that. Yeah, it says yeah. 41 months, uh, you know, which adds up to about, what, three and a half years. Um, yeah. So, by the way, that bottle is kick-ass. It's it's great. I and like I know in bottle. the past you have maligned some of the Nissan products, which I think are all lovely for having <laughs> screw caps. Um, I want you to listen to something for a second. Okay. Oh, you hear nice. that? I did. It was awesome. <laughs> that wasn't a sound effect, by the that way. Is that is not a screw thing. cap. <laughs> um, so yeah, you'll be pleased to see that. But yeah, that is very cool. It's great. Well, I will tell you, my uh, my holiday uh, miracle is is far a far cry from that. I, I would say, <laughs> you know. But I would was going to mention that I did finally get to try something that I've been dying to try mm-hmm. now for a long time as part of an advent calendar that I'm doing. So oh, nice. Yeah, I think we talked about this uh, last year that I had an advent calendar by Drinks by the Dram. Well, th- this year my wife got me a different one. It's the 24 Days of Rum through I think it's the 1423 company in in Denmark. All right. By the way, shout out to my wife Melly for for getting that. You were the real yeah. MVP. So it's been really interesting so far. Uh, the one that came up was very much like a fist pump. Yeah, when I when I pulled it out because it was uh, Inner Circle rum from Australia, oh, Binley. Yeah, from Binley. Yeah. So uh, when I saw that come out, I was just like, yes, that nice. is the kind of thing I'm looking for in an, an advent calendar as a cool surprise. So That's this a Binley their... product I've never had before. Yeah, not, same here. And I've been you know hoping to try it at some point. I think it's exclusive to Europe usually. So anyhow, this is the five year old. Navy 
Navy strength rum at 57.2 percent all right uh fantastic just really really enjoyed it i you know i I expected to to kind of enjoy it uh so there's always that perception going in that might affect things but i really did like it it had a really a pronounced pineapple rind kind of uh note to it which i really liked a lot it still had some of the characteristics of some of the other binleys we've tried before the transcontinental one comes to mind and some of the other uh samples that we we've tried will mm-hmm. uh with that little like kind of white pepper hint to it mm-hmm. uh binley so, binley has a signature for sure and in, in like a through line in every rum that yes. i've tried from them that is so distinctive and uh yeah i my my appreciation for them has 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 grown a lot this year as I've tried more and more stuff from them. So that's awesome. They're really doing great stuff. And uh, Steve McGarry, another former guest. Wow, we we say that a lot now. <laughs> yeah. We've had a lot of episodes. Um, this is what we do. We just plug our <laughs> former guests. Um, that that's our that's our thing here. Yeah. Any, anyway, it's been a great calendar so far, and and I enjoy doing that. I've seen a lot of other people online that are that are doing these, and I find it a really fun activity this time of year. Uh, I'm getting my wife to try some of these too, Will, which is fun. Wow, uh, those those aren't uh, always. The the biggest samples so they're that's, not and yeah. i'm sharing them yeah uh, generous but, of you, you know, to give back give back for uh well, she, since she gave she, such a great gift yeah to she surprised me with it so i figured let's get her involved but you as you all know she's not really a rum drinker or very much not like a neat spirits drinker mm-hmm. So to try these little samples, um, she describes them all as some form of fire. <laughs> this one's mild that. fire. I love that. This one's hot fire. This one's long <laughs> fire. Um, so she's having fun with it, and we're we're enjoying it. Excellent. Yeah. Well, to get to the uh, the the topic of the day on this episode, so. This is all about uh, a website that I've mentioned on the show several times before, uh, bostonapothecary.com. It is a blog run by a guy named Steven Schellenberger, who is our guest on this episode. And uh, yeah, I just kind of want to give like some background to kind of tee up, you know, why we wanted to talk to Steven, the the significance of Boston Apothecary as, you know, a, a website within the, the rum universe. So like to me, there's there's kind of two roles that the blog plays. The first one, uh, we talk about both of these with Steven, but mm-hmm. the, the first one is that it acts as sort of a digital repository of historical rum literature that previously was either difficult or sometimes impossible to access for free on the internet. So w- when I say rum literature, I'm talking about you know technical papers on rum production, mm-hmm written by scientists and researchers, people often hired by governments of rum-making nations in the past. Um, I always think like Marie Curie, but for rum. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Um, One example that you might be familiar with if you're a certain type of dorky rum consumer would be uh, H.H. Cousins' instructions for making high ether rum, which is Mm -hmm. uh, a a document that... uh, details the high ester rum making process still in use at Hampton today. Uh, So, you know, previously not something that was widely available. Now anyone can Google it and read it because Stephen put the entire text on Boston Apothecary. So there's all kinds of stuff like that. Particularly, there was a scientist named Rafael Arroyo who did all kinds of influential research on rum production in the 1930s and 40s in Puerto Rico. And Stephen kind of has a particular fascination for his work. Like if you go to the website, you'll notice there's a tab at the top that, you know, like on the site menu that just has Arroyo. So he's kind of (laughs) a big deal on Boston Apothecary. But Stephen's translated dozens of 
studies, papers, documents on rum that Arroyo wrote. And these Arroyo papers are interesting because he talks about some stuff that isn't really mentioned in the same terms anywhere else that I've seen before. So one example is something called rum oil, which Arroyo viewed as sort of um, like an aromatic component to end all components in rum. He wrote that it was more important than esters to the aroma of rum. So Stephen, not only did he, you know, publish these these papers that, you know, were hard to find or unavailable, he also rebuilt what had become kind of a defunct type of laboratory still used by Arroyo called the Birectifier, which, among other things, Arroyo used to detect the presence of what I was just describing, this stuff that he called rum oil, when analyzing a distillate. So, Stephen sells this laboratory still on his website. Uh, he publishes case studies where he analyzes commercially available spirits with the Birectifier. He also works with a couple of research partners around the world, and they kind of collaborate on implementing different heavy rum production techniques that Arroyo came up with that are in a lot of these papers that they republished um, and that, you know, he believes became kind of lost to time or never fully implemented for various reasons. So that's kind of the second side of the blog. There's the historical repository side and the experimentation slash documenting, uh, you know, his work he's doing with his research partner's mm -hmm. side. So part of the reason, you know, we wanted to have him on is that, his blog has uh, resurfaced in a widely available context, ideas and terms that I haven't seen discussed anywhere else. Like I'd see all the stuff about right. rum oil in Arroyo's work. And I'm like, what the heck is this? Like, why am I not hearing about it if it's so important? And we talked to Stephen about that. But, you know, it's, it's not as if this historical research is without merit because Stephen was invited to speak at a conference in Jamaica a couple of years back that was put on by Lalamond, which is a company that sells yeast uh, to basically almost every distillery in the world, probably, uh, <laughs> and Worspa, the West Indies Rum and Spirits uh, uh, Association. Mm -hmm. uh, and he gave a presentation there called The Grand Arome Rum Tradition, Finding the Future in the Past. Um, this was like an audience of rum distillers. There were people like Vivian Wisdom, uh, who previously, you know, ran things at uh, ran production at Hampton. They were those those are the kinds of people at this conference. So, you know, there's there's something here to this stuff that we wanted to to dig into more. And uh, Stephen has also kind of extrapolated a lot of his own theories and views based on his research and the results of all this experimentation he's doing. Um, sometimes he he kind of posits some of this in what I would describe as an eyebrow raising kind of way, which we mentioned. Agree. To yeah. him, you know, during the conversation, uh, you know, there, there, he, he had some ways of phrasing things that kind of, you know, made us do a double take, and we we're like, wait, like, what are you saying? Um, and uh, you know, there's some counter arguments to the importance of some of the stuff he talks about, like fish and yeast. We'll link to that in the show notes. So there's a ton in here. It's it gets in the weeds at times, but um, yeah, yeah, I just I think this is a, a fascinating little rum corner of the internet that. Ha like there, uh, there were just questions about it that I hadn't been able to find answers to. So um, yeah. we dig into all that and more. 
Yeah, it does get in the weeds a little bit here and there, but uh, I think what is interesting about it, as you mentioned, is some fascinating concepts that don't get talked about as often, and with us either. And yeah. what's even kind of more interesting to me is just to recall and remember that, uh, you know, Stephen, he's a smart guy, and he's kind of just doing this of his own accord. He's he's just a dude that likes rum, kind of like us, and, and is putting all this effort and time into things, which I, I find also an interesting angle and aspect of this. Yeah, yeah, he has a, a, a full-time job in the restaurant industry, which we we talk about. And uh, I mean, I think that's where a lot of the initial fascination with spirits and stuff came from was working right. in, that, in that industry. And yeah, he, he's just, you know, done all this on the side with passion and, and vigor. And uh, so it was it was a, a fun conversation that went a lot of interesting and unforeseen places. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll jump right back in with it. So we are here with Steven Schellenberger, the man behind Boston Apothecary, which is a website. I know I've made reference to it several times over our 40-something episodes of this podcast so far. And it's one of those things that early on, I knew we'd want to talk to you at some point, because if there's a rum-related website out there that demands conversation, I feel like it's definitely uh, your website. So uh, <laughs> we're really excited to have you here. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. One thing I noted uh, in our, you know, while we were trying to schedule this interview, and as I was, you know, I've been following your site for three or four years now, I want to say, and I was trying to go back and read stuff and just re-familiarize myself with a lot of like the things you've written about over the years. And every now and then we have a show, uh, a guest on the show that as I'm kind of like going back and, you know, reading all the interviews they've done, reading their work, if they have written output and stuff like that. We get guests every once in a while that make me feel really bad about my own personal productivity. And you're one of those people because as I just like look back at everything you've done with Boston Apothecary over the years, and um, I know you have, you know, full-time job, full-time work outside of that as well. It strikes me as you seem like you must have like a structured approach to your creative pursuits and things like that. Uh, I could be totally wrong, but um, I, ima I well, imagine you as having these very structured days. So we're recording this on a Sunday morning, and I was just curious to know, like, after this, do you have translating, uh, you know, some lost research scheduled after this? Do you have experiments <laughs> to check in on? Like, what does that kind of typical day look like for you? Well, my my productivity lately is is flagging, and then basically the two research partners that I work with have monster productivity. Okay. Uh, Corey Widmer's productivity is incredible. It's very hard to keep up with. Uh, Callum Upfeld in New Zealand, his productivity is, you know, wild. They both have full-time jobs. They both are in relationships and yet they, the amount of stuff they get done is just pretty astounding. So I'm, I'm absolutely in their shadow at the moment. So you're just I trying to like keep I'm up, here. keep up with those guys. Well, going years back, I've had like, impressive productivity <laughs> but then you know today's a weird one I've, I'm, I'm working on a translation i'm trying to translate le cognac yeah you mentioned that uh, in our last email it's a text from the 50s um 
a lot of people thought that it might be one of the most valuable things for the new distilling community that could be translated. It's like the the supreme treaties on double distillation uh, okay. from a Pontiac approach. And it has a lot of information that's not seen anywhere. So it's proving to be pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, it's drawing me into it. I'm putting down other things to pick it up because it's answering questions that I've long had. And then one of the funky things is I found that there was a, a small consortium of people that tried to translate it, but they kind of gave up. Is it really long, I'm presuming? No, it's it's just translation is kind of hard. You got to be good mm-hmm. at the OCR. You got to be, um, you know, good with the languages. There's lots of sleuthing and it's tricky. And I, I think I got good at it. I learned it from some academic poets at Harvard. Oh, wow. Uh, I was going to mention, I, I was also did a lot of stuff with that uh, translating from Latin texts in school. And like you mentioned, the thing is, it's tricky because it's always kind of an interpretation, right? Yeah, uh, a, rendering. a rendering, right? So yeah. it, it, go back to what you're saying, but I'm curious to know because that that Harvard poet relationship—that's where a lot of this comes from. And choosing the words is so important when you're translating, right? Well, it's important, but it's um, knowing the context can be more important than knowing the language. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's context-based translation. You know, and so knowing the context of distillation and all the names and all the references, even in the eras, being able to know what the authors read to come to some of these things. Right. More important than knowing French, you know, and, you know, because a lot of people uh, that I learned this from David Ferry being the big one, you know, he won the National Book Award for Poetry. He translated uh, or he wrote the rendering of Gilgamesh that's taught in a lot of schools. Oh, yeah. Yeah. David and I spent 10 years talking about translating the Aeneid. The Aeneid. Yeah. I, one of my very, very favorite books. Sorry, I'm, we're going to get way off topic, but <laughs> well, I love the well, Aeneid I mean, and the Odyssey. Yes. Translation is very important at the moment to the distilling scene because uh-huh. any renaissance starts with uncovering lost literature and translating it. All right. That's how the renaissance happened. Right. You know, that's how a distilling renaissance is happening. And we're tackling five languages. I want to come back to this idea of the distilling renaissance and, and you know, translating all these these quote unquote lost texts and stuff like that. But before we get into that, I want to I want to talk a little bit about Boston Apothecary and uh, and then and then we'll we'll come back and we'll dive back into that. But one one thing I've always struggled with a little bit is when I tell someone about Boston Apothecary, because I tell people about it a lot because there's so much interesting stuff, but I struggle with like how to introduce what it is to people. So I'm interested in just when you introduce someone to it for the first time, what what do you tell them? It's definitely a blog. It's blog quality. (laughs) 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 You know, I just, um, it's just, you know, a web blog, a journal of of stuff that I want to carry in it that a lot of it is just trying to make things indexed by Google, you know, so I don't really care too much about its internal organization. I've never learned anything about using WordPress. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm usually just hoping that I can, you know, move some information over a paywall, make it better indexed by Google so people can find things. Mm -hmm. And then even, you know, one of the big concerns is making information, you know, that is in the public domain globally available because certain things that we think we could have read here that, you know, m- might have really um, helped people's awareness of Jamaican rum, say the 
H.H. Cousins or S.F. Mm-hmm. Ashby papers. They were in the public domain, right? Well, right. they're not available in Jamaica oh, because wow. of country restrictions. They're not available in Barbados oh. because of country restrictions. So, you know, places that originated a lot of that literature do not did not have the same access that we did. You know, so the, the blog is about making a lot of uh, that stuff just available to to the producers and uh, returning, you know, that literature to the younger generation that might not have had the benefit of it. And um, that sucks up a lot of my time. And then it's never been easy to create indexes on the blog, make it make it navigable. You know, it's definitely not like Matt Petrick's blog. In and, terms of organization. Well, it goes at a frantic pace because I have people asking me for things I have, you know, and then I just, it is hard to describe. And then it's gone in, in <laughs> generations. Like I was very, very interested in vermouth stuff. Right. Uh, I noticed right. that kind of going yeah. back and looking at, at some of the, the older posts. Yeah. You know, working through Maynard Amarine's annotated bibliography of vermouth and digitizing for the first time many of the things referenced there. And then it's influenced the generation of vermouths on the market. You know, I've even had recently producers coming to me asking me questions. You know, I'm not physically there consulting, but I'm sort of just educating them on uh, ideas and processes and, you know, what was in the literature. And, you know, my email inbox is kind of crazy. The blog has a lot of influence. I'm glad I made it through in that case, because that's how we got in touch. (laughs) Well, then, you know, I eventually got interested in like, uh, I've always been interested in the cocktail scene. Yeah, you know, from the very okay. beginning, and that you know that was covered in there, and then a lot of language-related things that these poets got me interested in, and they were even related to wine. How do our descriptive systems work? What are you know metaphor theory? How do we talk about stuff? And I yeah. thought that it would even influence the way a lot of people uh, taste and describe their taste. I don't really, I don't like people's tasting notes. If it's like object comparison, object comparison, object comparison, it's like, that's not how tasting works. Mm. You know, a lot of it's just like rhetorical. It's not. So there, there's a whole phase that lasts years in there that look at, you know, metaphor theory. And I don't choose to tell people about it because yeah. they still don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But <laughs> uh, one thing I've, I've liked going through your work is I've noticed that you have that that interest and appreciation for the use of language in describing a lot of this stuff. Like you'll note a lot of times if, if you've just uh, published, you know, some, some text, some, some work from someone, you'll point out like, you know, they, they write beautifully about X, Y, and Z. And it always just, it, it kind of strikes me because I feel like I don't usually see people pointing out the details about the quality of the writing when it comes to technical writing about uh, spirits and things like that. Well, I was just covering a paragraph in Le Cognac, and I'm just telling my girlfriend, I love this paragraph. I mean, I love what, <laughs> what, you know, these authors are telling students. I was like, this is amazing, you know, and um, I definitely, I think, have an enthusiasm for it that I guess I haven't seen elsewhere. See, Arroyo's writing in Spanish was incredible. I found this large series of papers. They're very, very short articles, sometimes two and three pages, and they add up to being a preface to studies on rum mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and translating them is incredible. Like, I don't know if it's, it's a Puerto Rican dialect of Spanish. It, it translates effortlessly. Oh. And then it's just so beautiful from an educational standpoint. Yeah. 
And I think that he chose all of his words carefully. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was a beautiful educator, even besides the science. And I mean, that's just what's better than that, you know, yeah. especially, yeah. you know, we're trying to educate a new generation of distillers to have, you know, various renaissances in all sorts of productions and, you know, highlighting these people. It's just, um, it's been fun. Yeah. My wife's first language is Spanish and she always talks about the idea that when she says things in Spanish, if you don't know the Spanish, the translation into English is just a poor reflection of how well it's constructed in that language and, and the meaning uh, of that kind of stuff. We always, funny enough, we talk about soccer and how the soccer announcers are so much better in Spanish than they are in English with the way they describe things. And she'll like live time describe things to me as we're <laughs> watching it from the Spanish announcers. It's always fun. And Anyway, I want to take one step back because you've mentioned now cognac, you've mentioned vermouth, uh, some wine stuff. But in looking at your blog, I mean, there's a ton of rum stuff on there. So before we start getting into more of the specifics, how did rum get such a big presence and end up kind of grabbing so much of your attention? You know, I was always into rum and bought everything on the market. And man, I remember I was buying these like magical plantation bottlings that were like 30 bucks. I think I was like 21. I was going to this incredible liquor store that had all this stuff that no one else did. And I would just uh, basically drink everything. Yeah. Uh, all the I was buying the early Zacapas for twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, around uh, around what what time period was this? Was this like mid 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 to late two thousands? No, this would be two thousand three. Okay, okay, gotcha. You know, maybe two thousand four. Yeah. You know, I'm young. I'm not yet forty, but I'm. Uh, I was. This is basically when I turned twenty one. I started drinking. You yeah, know, you I, I got an early start <laughs> and it was all going to this magical liquor store, Liquorland in Roxbury. And uh, there was this um, really brilliant person there, Emmett, and he just stocked all sorts of unique stuff. And, you know, he was turning me on to things. Yeah, it's always great when you find that one place that becomes uh, becomes like your 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 window into a larger yeah. spirits universe. But then, you know, as far as an academic interest, I wasn't interested in rum until something that David Wondrich wrote just got me Googling stuff. And I found the collected writings of W.F. Whitehouse, the great ah. Agricola. And the story is insane. There's a distill, the distill off, off. Uh, you know, and it's like a Mark Twain incident, you know, <laughs> and the loser has to leave the island, you know, it's like, And then what you kind of find later, though, as you learn things and learn how regarded this guy was, even by um, was a CJ Ray, it it was a big deal. This guy's work was a big deal. And it might actually represent the beginning of rum history and anything before it, even if they use the term rum, that's proto rum. You know, just like we know this proto punk. We've accepted that. Well, there's fucking proto rum. (laughs) It's a thing. (laughs) I, right. I want to talk about that more later, but I, I want you to keep going. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, there, that's it. This is the incident. The distill off and the reflection that it created. And that that is that is sort of rum making. So rum is a Jamaican thing from well, like the 1830s. Okay. Well, you baited me into it. So let's talk about it now. So with proto-rum... You're saying that, I, I believe I read on the blog, something like that, this happened around the, the mid-19th century, if I remember right. Correct. Please feel free to correct well, me. Well, it's a little earlier, you know, okay. 1830s, 1840s. Okay, okay. 
So you're saying everything prior to that is proto-rum. Yeah. For, for me and for others, what do you mean when you say that? How are you making that def- definition between modern rum and what happened before that? Um, because afterwards, you know, you, you might recognize some of the things that, that White House produced or, okay. or, or, or Ray as what you consume now. And before that, though, you're going to find a lot of like burnt scorched stuff. It, and you're... You're talking specifically about Jamaica or anywhere at that point? Oh, really anywhere at that point. And if you look, I just recently uh, digitized something and it was of a, an engineer who um, worked for Wedderburn. Mm-hmm. And there's not many references to the Wedderburn name. And one of his big innovations is, you know, going from direct fire, which was not used as skillfully as in cognac and going to... Um, uh, steam boilers, and then him just complaining about all the scorching and burnt stuff at all times, you know, and, it, and even complaining about how they had to structure the distillation run to have this like astoundingly narrow hearts fraction because of all the scorching, you know, that product would not be recognizable. So the they distinction the is run. one of um, one of quality then at that, oh, yeah. at that point, yeah. but it even has to do with like intentionality after the reflection of White House, rum gained so much more intention. And it yeah. was about unlocking unlocking molasses and its its character and its its productivity, you know, looking for a certain type of efficiency from it. And then also, you know, um, employing skimmings to increase quality. And just a, a reflection on it came where uh, just more attention was given to every aspect. And then you just see that that continues and builds up until they even, you know, start to figure out, you know, which yeast is the best. And then, you know, by maybe the 1890s, you see the awareness of, of fission yeasts. Which uh, I think we're going to talk about. I, I, I know both Will and I have a lot of questions about fission yeast and, and getting into that. Again, I just I want to try to set things up for us in the conversation before we get too into the weeds. But with all of that talking about now one of your blog posts with Proto-Rum, we talked about other things with Arroyo's papers on rum and, and others that you've translated. I wanted to set the stage a little bit more by just asking you, through all of that, what do you think your central kind of mission is and, and what you want to accomplish through the website, through the blog? Well, the mission is a clearer sense of history. People used to think that rum might have been like the poorest documented spirits category. And it turns yeah. out to be the complete opposite. It's the most thoroughly documented thing there is. Huh. And we know names on everything. Why and is I don't know that? If you saw the Long Pond Papers, I just documented every mark from every distillery from 1958, you know, and people thought that that information was not available. Right. And I even know where there's more papers with more stuff, you know, it's really accessibility, right? Part of what you're doing. Accessibility. And then even a lot of things was across multiple languages, you know, so, you know, we're thoroughly documenting Iraq, which people thought was very inaccessible. And it's like, well, you know, Translating the Dutch was the hardest language, but I did it, you know, and it, it hopefully can feed a lot of enthusiasm for it. And then what we even find on a scientific level is that Arroyo's unique high pH heavy rum ferments were very much like the Batavia Arak ferments. Mm. And, you know, they just sort of anchor them. Then you, you kind of do find there's two mother rums and the two mother rums are the Jamaican high acid process 
and then the Batavia Arak process, which might have been a high pH process due to how much lime they had. They both employed fission yeasts, and they both were capable of pretty astounding amounts of rum oil, you know, which is something that the rum scene has not reconciled. People are afraid to talk about it because it doesn't come, you know, from anyone but me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we're going to get into rum oil for yeah. sure in a bit, uh, because it uh, definitely it is like one of the things that I think once people start digging into your blog a little bit, like you start seeing it and it's kind of like, wait, why? The, what is the importance with this this term I'm not familiar with? Yeah. Um, before we so, get to so, that, I, well, I, I, one, one thing to clarify very quickly, it, it builds up all these papers. There's a rum prophecy, you know, and that we never fulfilled it. You know, and it has to do with half of Arroyo's work, the heavy stuff, has never come to be. No one has produced any of it. Even the Jamaican stuff and a lot of people trying to bring it to other islands to unlock the science, they have never done it. Batavia Arak, never really been duplicated. Everyone has, there's a prophecy that, and, and a chain of scientists have worked on it to create a fission yeast renaissance because a lot of those ideas would get lost and that we would just be seeing far more distilleries proliferating, just like single malts that use the the real, all the greatest ideas of rum production, you know, so that there wouldn't simply be one hemp den. You know, you can have people using those ideas in other parts of the world and that Arroyo's, you know, processes would be used. And the, the prophecy is crazy. I mean, you have people that were like direct students of Pasteur, that cryogenically froze these yeasts a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. and I, for, for us, yes, <laughs> yes, they did. And it is basically for when people came around to it, you know, to sort of fulfill the prophecy and use the stuff. I, I, I think people's people's minds might be kind of going a little all over the place right now, hearing terms like prophecy and things like that. Um, and and I, you you mentioned several different people and ideas there: right. Arroyo, fish and yeast, uh, rum oil, and everything. And I want to you know kind of dive into each of those so so people can get a, a better sense of you know the cumulative total of of what you're speaking about there. Um, because I think there's a lot of really interesting ideas within that to explore. And I, I have further questions about, you know, some of this stuff. But um, one one thing I, I want to talk about is, you know, there's, there's this really useful post on the site from 2020 called Top 10 Blog Moments in Rum. And I'd actually like, I'd encourage anyone who's listening to like, I think that's a really kind of good place to start on the site if, if you're curious about rum and, and want to know more about this stuff. But also because it includes the the very first thing that led me to the site, which was Peter Valer's 1937 report for the U.S. Treasury Department called Foreign and Domestic Rum. And um, to me, if you're at all curious about rum history, you'll love reading that because it reveals like so many unexpected details about what rum looked all around the world in 1937. It was just one of those things that you know, and I have a much more casual level of knowledge about the history of rum than, than someone who's spent as much time looking at it as someone like you. But there was just so many things reading that that made me be like, this is like completely different in so many ways than the conception of rum that I had in my mind. And that's what I think a lot of, you know, the, the, the documents and things on your website bring out. And what I wanted to ask was, when you come across something like that, um, a, a piece of history, 
what kind of goes through your mind? Like when you found that, did you realize the significance of that one at the time? And, and, oh, yeah. and when you put it on the site, what is the response like? Um, like, do you start hearing from different people throughout the distilling community? What, like, no. talk me through what that's like. I mean, the response I get is kind of terrible. Um, the, <laughs> the blog is just has a lot of like lurkers that don't want to like participate you know, because everyone is sort of jockeying to be some kind of like authority. Okay. Uh, um, and then notice I don't get invited anywhere. So I'm never going to a rum conference, mm. you know, and then lots of authors. I try to feed authors uh-huh. and give them, you know, primary documents to create interesting content. But, you know, they're not, they're not all the friendliest. Um, so the, the feedback I get is always terrible. I mean, like there's no comments roughly anywhere on the blog ever I, I feel like i've seen a lot of comments really not a lot not like other blogs <laughs> okay no. basically it's crickets and then someone sends me an email you know and it's like um you know we resurrect the birectifier do astounding case studies on it and it's like you know i sell a handful of them and it's only to just a couple absolutely astounding incredible people but you know, you can make a tool available for a reasonable amount of money that can really give chromatography a run for its money, you know, mm-hmm. 3,000 versus 30,000, you know, and yet you can have this really comprehensive system to understand spirits and, and develop your product. And, you know, we're, we're coming into maybe there's, there could be like a hundred million dollars invested in new American rum. And, you know, the, the there's no one is using a birectifier. You know, no one is even $100 million in new American investment in probably not a single American distillery is equipped to measure esters. Well, um, you, you don't need a birectifier to measure esters, correct? No, but I'm just saying as far as uh, laboratory interest uh-huh. and um, uh, infrastructure, I'm always about, you know, foresight and infrastructure and foundational things. And, uh, you know, I just don't get a lot of interest. A lot of readership, but not like um, interaction. Do you have a theory as to why that is? You're kind of, I guess, painting yourself as the outcast in a little bit of a, a way with that, yeah. like saying, I don't get invited to places. Do you Do you have a, a theory behind that? Uh, the status quo is strong in distilling. You know, a couple people have been coming to me lately and trying to speculate on it. One oh. of the recent speculators was very surprising, someone I didn't know personally, but they're easily like a top five American distilling figure. And they were trying to say that, um, you know, no one knows enough about distilling to have an opinion on, you know, what you're doing. Uh And, um, you know, nothing has really run its course and just um, no writers are giving any perspective. No one can really tell if anything is ordinary or extraordinary. You know, they assume they see you working on this sort of science and they just assume that the distillers are doing the same thing. Hmm. They don't realize that, no, that is not happening. Distillers are even relying on the blog as an educational resource. And, you know, no one helps contextualize anything. And uh, you just kind of, you know, floundering out there. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's frustrating. We've always hoped to find an investor. Um, and, uh, you know, there's rampant interest in bourbon right yeah i'm in tennessee so yeah i see it you know but you know what what does rum get and uh you know not many people not many writers not many other figures uh make space for 
myself or the blog. I'm not really complaining that much, but it's, it's just kind of weird. We just wonder like, you know, what's the next step? What do we do with all this stuff? You know, I, I have a good time. I have so much fun working with my research partners. Uh, we have, we had a fucking blast. I mean, they're brilliant and being able to work with brilliant people is really fun. My job, my full-time job is also awesome, you know, so I'm like very fulfilled. Yeah. Uh, but then like what comes next and uh, that just, <laughs> the, <laughs> the answer to that question is a little bit disappointing, you know, despite all the fun we've had and like possible influence we've had on the market. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, you know, what comes next is really just, um, you know, we don't know. Yeah. I, th- I think you were speaking to, you know, not being invited to, to conferences, things like that. One thing that, you know, I did note in following your blog over the years was you, you did present at the alcohol school, um, which is kind of the conference that Lalamond puts on. Um, yeah. And it, it was one that was particular. It was, I think it was in Jamaica that time, yeah. right? And it was particularly well attended by WORSPA members, like Vivian Wisdom from Hampton was there. It was a WORSPA event. Okay, yeah. so that and, one specifically you know, was WORSPA. That, that organization is awesome. And the uh, the head of the organization, Vaughn Von Rennick, he mm-hmm. is particularly awesome. You know, and he's read the blog over the years. And, you know, he was hoping for an interesting figure to sort of shake shit up, mm-hmm. you know, and um, uh, talk about things, especially, you know, reclaiming history. And so, you know, Vaughn instigated the whole thing, uh, gave me a chance to do it, you know, urged Lalaman to sort of accept, even though I'm not a, a I'm not a true my accredited microbiologist. Sure. You know, and um, it was an awesome experience. Meeting all the distillers is so, so cool. So many of them are young. So many of them are very, very interested in all of this work, you know, but then it becomes tricky. At that time, I did not really realize how much literature was inaccessible to these young people, mm-hmm. you know, and they want to leave their mark on the rum scene and possibly even formulate, you know, new products within their distilleries. And they, they don't have the ability, you know, they're, they're caught up in bureaucratic systems, zero research budget, they're stuck in conglomerates that are all focused on whiskey. Mm. Um, and then they're also, you know, caught up in, in some of the GI pissing contests where, um, you know, they can't rock the boat in any way. And this, this leads up to something else that's happening in the rum scene that I advocated for, but it, it's very tricky. And it's pretty much allowing some of the distillers to be more like public intellectuals, like you see in the wine industry. You know, the winemakers are have interesting social media presences. They even talk to their colleagues on social media and the interactions that you see are, are very, very interesting. And yeah. there's mm-hmm. no real equivalent in the distilling scene. And then in particular in the rum scene, and it becomes more challenging when you're you know, stuck on an island and you have to work for one firm for your whole career. Um, you can't rock the boat in any way that might have you dismissed. So a lot of people have trouble becoming the public intellectual that like Richard Seale has become. Hmm. You know? I, I will and, say one one thing we've tried to make a point of, particularly like, I don't know, over the last year, it was like we've wanted to try to get more people from these from these, you know, great rum distilleries um, who are who are doing the work, um, who are doing the, the distilling, doing the blending, everything like that and talk to them. 
Um, and we have had some. We had um, uh, Craig Nicholson, uh, who is at Worthy Park now and was previously oh. uh, worked for National Rums of Jamaica. Great conversation, super mm-hmm. fascinating. But but it, it has been a little bit frustrating sometimes with trying like trying to get that can be difficult um, from all the distilleries. So like some some are a hundred percent on board and uh it was actually it was actually maggie campbell who recommended craig um and kind of connected us so you know maggie campbell is the second major wonderful public intellectual absolutely yeah and And we've we've spoken to her as well can we just empower some of the other distilleries to allow someone to speak so freely right you know as like maggie and richard seal Mm -hmm. and what you see though is that there might be an interest in these these public faces that can teach us so yeah. much more, but hopefully also swing a little weight with the ownership to start maybe new research programs and evolve some products in certain ways. And, you know, uh, Maggie just ended up at, um, okay. Okay, right. Awesome. Uh, you know, and just hopefully some of the other distilleries get competitive and sort of, um, you know, promote or empower someone to be a little bit more like Maggie because they have, you know, staff as vibrant. Absolutely. And I just feel mm-hmm. that they're not so constrained from speaking or giving opinions. You know, some of the staff, they've sure got opinions on GIs and stuff. And they also want to leave their generation's mark on rum. But then, you know, they don't feel as free to speak. I, I, I think um, one thing people listening to this may be like, okay, like who are less familiar, haven't seen your site before, maybe thinking like, okay, Steven is this guy in this, this American guy in Philadelphia who isn't a, I mean, I know you do distillation. You're not like a full-time distiller. And they, I think that may be a source of skepticism for some people in terms, in terms (laughs) of like, who is this guy to be saying that there's, you know, this rum prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled because I'm drinking all this fucking awesome rum from uh, Jamaica and Barbados and all these places. And rum is great, but he's saying that like, stuff has been lost and needs to be restored. And so I think when people see that background, and I'm sure you're aware of this, um, but I just kind of want to put it out there because oh, I yeah. think it's probably I mean, going it's, through people's minds. This is a big problem. You know, um, at the, the Lalaman conference, I'm talking about fission yeasts and the whole room is like of distillers, you know, who, who buy their yeast from Lalaman. This is a sort of problem is there's so much outsourcing of, you know, technology and innovation to Lalaman. And Lalman's a really great company, but there's only one of them. So you don't really see a lot of uh, competition and innovation. Mm-hmm. All the Lalman people are really awesome, but you don't have market forces that sort of create innovation. Okay. Uh, what the hell is a fission yeast? You know, and I'm just like up there, <laughs> <laughs> the young guy uh, from Boston. And I'm saying that, you know, I found a hundred years of research papers and these fission yeasts are freaking everywhere. And then even there's an important figure of recent history is Professor Louis Farazmain. Pretty incredible um, uh, dude in uh, Martinique and Guadeloupe. And he worked on teams to create a fission yeast renaissance in sort of the 70s and the 80s. And it, and it sort of broke their hearts a bit. And what it ends up happening is they create or uh, identify, isolate a budding yeast, you know, the typical yeast right. that Laloman uses to supply nearly every distillery of the world. It's a Farazmane yeast. Well, I'm talking to 
a whole generation removed at Lalum and they don't know who Professor Farazmain is. And I was like, the, you know, the dude's alive. You've corresponded with him, right? Oh, with, yeah, Farazmain, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's around. I think he was recently profiled in uh, a European magazine on rum. And uh, it was very, very cool to see him recognized. And I wonder if any of it came from the blog. I, I translated like uh, 20 of the papers between him and his colleagues, mm-hmm. you know, and made a lot of that stuff available because it was, you know, first time digitized or it was behind paywalls in weird ways. Um, but their main goal was to create a fission yeast renaissance. Their legacy was the most important budding yeast used to make light runs. Oh, interesting. And then the result relative to Lalaman was the current generation of Lalaman people didn't know who he was. You know, even though he's still around, he's sort of erased from this sort of company history, just the way things work, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wasn't just talking about things from the early, you know, 1900. I was also talking about 1980, you know, and saying that even surveys of Haitian clarins were mostly fission yeast. And what sort of happened was another wonderful speaker, probably the most important living figure on rum, Vivian Wisdom, you know, yes. who was out camp mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. Great gives name. A presentation after me. Yeah. He, he and Hampton was not aware at the time that they employed a fission yeast. And those would be part of, well, Hampton is all wild yeast. So it, uh, that, that's where those fission yeasts would be found, right? Yeah. And that, um, the yeasts aren't maybe as wild as you think. They they sort of get selected for, and they sort of adapt to the environment. Okay, before we keep going with this, I'll, I'll be the one who says, look, I know enough to know that yeast is a part of distilling. I understand what it's uh, doing in yeast, and I get that. But I'm going to guess I'm not the only one listening to this that's going to say, what the heck is a fish in yeast? And why is that important over any other yeast that's used? So... A fission yeast is kind of a queen yeast, you know, and it, and it divides a different way. It divides by binary fission, not right. by budding. Meaning it kind of splits down the middle, right? Yeah. So it, in a way. So it's just kind of boop, p- producing, you know, two from one. I like, has, I like that sound effect. It, yeah, thank you. <laughs> you know, it has different properties. It has sort of thicker skin. It makes it more osmo tolerant. So when you have dunder and you have accumulations of acids, it's, it's more tolerant. It can basically thrive in an environment with a lot of vinegar. Okay. Budding yeast can't. It can thrive in environments that have a lot of butyric acid. Right. Budding yeast absolutely cannot. You know, so... So when, you're saying that's a superior yeast strain than to what's being used in the typical production of rum in today's world in most places. But at a lot of different levels... Okay. And, you know, we can start to, to categorize them. And one, one of the interesting ones, people will say, oh, fish and yeast, they can make lighter rums. You know, they don't just make heavy rums. And it's like, absolutely. And we produce and consume a lot of lighter mm-hmm. rums. But a lot of the lighter rums that we have now are a little bit, the fermentations are train wrecks. They're sort of cleaned up in a continuous still. They require lots of fusel oil separation. Mm-hmm those distillates end up being astoundingly neutral. And then to create the final light rum, they're blended with heavy rum. And when you use a fission yeast to create a light rum, you end up, a fission yeast is a far below average fusel oil producer. So you don't really need to do that kind of separation that also compromises a lot of um, inherent uh, higher value congeneric properties. 
right. you get more flavor, even in a light context. And so that you can basically make unblended light rums. And this was something that Arroyo sort of theorized that hasn't really come to fruition. And that's one thing you can do with a fission yeast. The next thing you can do with a fission yeast is sort of the Hampton approach. And it's glorious. And that we know a lot of its symbiotic behavior with bacteria. And this would be the Cousins process, right? Um, yeah, well, you know, Cousins process kind of had to do with some of the distillation of it. I mean, okay. Hampton was already doing it. Cousins might have helped them because even a place like Hampton had a lot of variation. You know, and uh, Long Pond, a lot of variation. And a lot of that has kind of been ironed out to some degree, but that still exists in the process. But anyhow, you know, you just see lots of um, symbiotic behavior and all the bacteria that people are really, really interested in that they think creates a lot of the aroma relies mm -hmm. on a symbiotic partner, the fission yeast. And then it also relies on abnormally low fusel oil. And it also relies on the temperature tolerance. So the fission yeast can tolerate higher temperatures without getting stressed out. So that, but when you need to capture all that high value aroma, the fuse oil is less volatile. So their fates are bound. If you have more, less fuse oil, you're more justified in collecting all the higher value esters, acids, rum oil. So we're only up to number two. The third, way is using the fission yeast in a high pH process that, you know, might've been what some of the Batavia Arak ferments were like, mm -hmm. and was in Arroyo's process. And at a high pH, the fission yeast starts to behave almost like a yeast, but also with attributes we project onto bacteria. Okay. So it can produce a lot of its own aroma. So in the Hampton process, and Hampton is probably the leader in, in having rum oil on the market. Uh, lactic acid bacteria that's very particular, nothing ordinary, very particular, might produce that rum oil. But in the Arroyo process, the yeast does it itself under very narrow conditions that are at high pH, which is very hard to maintain. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have any contamination, the bacteria is going to drop your pH. Okay. And then... You're going to be out of range for aroma beneficial enzyme activity. So maintaining a high pH is easy to say. It's hard to do. But when you do it, you know, Corey Widmer has become like the master of actually executing this. It's very hard. You can get astounding amounts of rum oil, possibly higher than Hampton. But, you know, it's different. Well, you let's... can't say one is superior to the other. And you start to see other things happen, even how... Uh, acids and esters are synthesized in the ferment that become a little bit more like the yeast acting like bacteria. And so they kind of have this duality. They're the friend of bacteria, or on the other hand, they can even under Do what it does. Mm. Yeah. And so that's pretty fucking cool. And even those light rums are pretty darn cool. So you, you end up with three really interesting ideas, but then you start to solve other problems the industry has. One of it is temperature control. Mm -hmm. Temperature control is very expensive. It's very capital intensive. Climate change pressures things. You know, you might be able to get more mileage in a tropical environment with a fission yeast. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that if you need to have more identity, more storytelling, 
more connection to history, you want the fish and yeast, but also you need to grow your own yeast. You need to possibly, you know, back away from some of what Lalleman does. And also from, I mean, I'd like to just throw out the anti-colonial word, bring a lot of that back to your own island, create the jobs of skilled microbiologists mm. on your staff. Because the University of the West Indies just educates astounding people. Yeah, yeah. You know, with, with microbiology skills, can we employ them closer to home? You know, possibly. And something to do is growing your own yeast. So I want to come back to fish and yeast. Can we touch on rum oil for a second? Because oh, yeah. I, I like people have heard that word and right. uh, in the context you're bringing it, it up, obviously it sounds important. And I wanted to give a little bit of context and then have you kind of fill in some of the gaps. But so as my understanding is, this is a term that uh, Arroyo used to describe something that, you know, shows up in some rums. I know, you, you know, you made reference to the birectifier. That's a tool that he used that you have kind of reconstructed that can show the presence of, you know, what's being described as rum oil in rums. And there's there's a description from one of his articles that you translated uh, into English on your blog called The Aroma of Rum. And it caught my eye. It was kind of a, a, his, his description of rum oil. So I wanted to read it for people because for me, when I read it, I was kind of like, oh, like this sounds pretty important when it's described this way. <laughs> so the, the quote is, among all the aromatic bodies that make up the complex bouquet and composition of a genuine rum, rum oil is the most valuable ingredient, but also the one that is found in least quantities. The influence of the aroma of this essential oil is so important that a rum entirely devoid of esters and aldehydes would still retain its distinctive aroma of a good rum, provided that this valuable essential oil is present in sufficiently high quantities. So backing up from that, my question is, what exactly is rum oil? How is it developed in rum? And why does it seem as if nobody talks about that term now, if it's so important? Uh, <laughs> um, there is a lot to it. There's a lot of history. <laughs> I packed a lot of questions in there. You know, it's, and it starts with, that's part of the whole quest uh, going back to the be very beginning of the 19th century, and you you have Carl Miko, who he had the first version of the birectifier. Right. And he identified uh, rum oil. And, uh, you know, he was analyzing all sorts of spirits in Europe and then just finding there was this this quality and it was not an ester. And it, it just defined a lot of spirits and had, you know, what he called the highest value. So Arroyo kind of gets it later. I mean, 35 five years later. And we should clarify, Arroyo yep. is a chemist. He does his work primarily in Puerto Rico at the Rum Pilot yep. plant. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, he, I think he was educated in um, LSU, Jersey, right? Louisiana. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Miko started a lot of this. And then on the blog, you'll see something called um, the Rum Oil Smoking Gun. Yeah. And it was where some uh, French researchers in the 70s you know, found um, attributed rum oil simply to damascenone. And they... What is, what is damascenone? Damascenone is, according to the perfumers, the most beautiful theoretic known odorant. And it's a rose ketone. There are other rose ketones, ionone, mm -hmm. damascone, damascenone. Then they have like stereochemistry where they're right-handed and left-handed. And that 
influences the perception, but it ends up being the foundation of all modern perfumology. Interesting. And they synthesize some of these compounds now in perfume, but they also look for natural sources of which rum is the highest source. Well, and rum has a connection to the perfume industry for a very long time. I think it it was, um, you know, we found, I don't think I published it on the blog because it didn't belong to me at the time, but I'll say it. When researching the Caroni distillery and we were talking to a former employee, we found that they might have been selling their fusel oil stream from their continuous stills to the perfume industry. Oh, wow. And the perfume industry might have been salvaging you know, rose ketones from the higher alcohols, and they might have had a process and equipment to sort it. And that is really intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Um, you know, and and there's just so much to this. And the, and the perfumers, we, one that gets referenced on the blog a lot is this guy, Arcadi Blockamps. I think I say his name right. And he describes this like radiance and also how these rose ketones took the whole industry by storm where in the seventies and eighties, they, they learn more about them. But uh, radiance is their idea that they valorize or make more beautiful other aromas. Mm. So esters are not so beautiful without a damascenone. So they enhance other aromas. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Very significantly. Mm-hmm. And that even in the rum world, there's all these anecdotes of, chromatography giving a printout and saying that yes this rum has as many esters as that rum but the europeans are telling us the buyers that one is far more valuable than the other right well and and a point like we've talked about a lot on the podcast is you know sometimes ester counts get conflated in terms of like the more esters the better the rum the higher the quality and I, i think people just from once you have enough experience tasting rums at different ester counts like obviously your impression of what something tastes like is and the quality of something is subjective but it's not as if it's some sort of like linear quality scale that just like the more esters you have the the better quality the rum is right right yeah but i mean the thing about esters that people latch on to is they're easy easy to describe Mm. you know and that like this one this one smells like pineapple and this one you know, and then work, like working this. with rum oil becomes really challenging. It challenges chromatography because a lot of the conventional, very expensive analysis that, that the large distilleries do misses it. It's not set up for it. And that some people, when they've worked with it in research papers, have had to use GCO, GC olfactometry, where they basically stick a smelling port on the unit and, you know, the human nose becomes the spectrometer. Okay. Because mm-hmm. as those aromas come across, uh, the spectrometer has no reference for them. And they're in such minute quantities, the human nose can detect them. And that a lot of that equipment is sort of university only. You know, so it's not something that a rum distillery, you know, has access to. And so it just kind of ends up being a blind spot. And what's very cool about the birectifier is it's very cheap olfactometry you get a sort of fractioning like chromatography performs but then you become the olfactometer and there are a lot of reasons they could be used in conjunction and uh just help distilleries ask and answer a lot of questions of their productions and and it ends up being a relatively affordable tool despite the fact that it seems like it was antiquated 
and uh, completely uh, made obsolete and just ends up not really being the case. So a birectifier then, we've been talking about it a lot and you're saying this is how you can, you know, detect some of these things uh, and and explaining that. But just to make sure uh, in layman's terms, a birectifier, you're taking an existing distillate. Tell me when I'm wrong here, Stephen. Uh, You're you're taking an existing distillate. You're then using this birectifier to heat it to temperatures, which fractionates that distillate. Yeah, you're distilling it. Right. You're redistilling it essentially, right? Well, it's it's a fractioning still, but it's also... it's micro distillation, which kind of has a little bit of a different physics than regular distillation. And then it's also about control and pacing so that you can repeat the structure and create fractions that you can compare one to one. Right. And that you would think you can do it with some conventional methods of distillation, you know, with a reflux head and a still Mm -hmm. You know, there's maybe some ideas that you see on commercial distilling units. That's kind of what I was going to ask, right? Okay. Well, you kind of can't on the micro level. So the birectifier is not easy to replace because basically with, uh, you know, scaling down a commercial unit, thinking you're going to get some fractioning power that compares to, say, vodka rectification, Mm -hmm. you kind of have a two-variable system. You have the heat at the bottom. And the water you you use for reflux at the top. Mm-hmm. With the birectifier, if you had that two-variable system, everything's so sensitive, you'd never get the control. You'd always be out of your mind trying to juggle it. You end up with just a one-variable system. You have just super precise heat at the bottom and air cooling at the top. And the device, the reason they call it the birectifier, there's a rectifier in a rectifier. It's wound like a trumpet. It's basically a distilling trumpet. Mm-hmm. And if you unwound it, it would be, you know, 10 feet tall. Wow. And, you know, many okay. people have tried to arrive at the same conclusion with apparatuses that were literally 10 feet tall. And what you find is they still don't really work as well. And the birectifier just might do a better job. And there's only one better still than the birectifier for doing this kind of micro distillation. The mm-hmm. other reason the birectifier went obsolete, it cost $30,000. And what is it called? The spinning band design. And it's basically used by a couple very elite perfumers, flavor houses, and the petroleum industry. They exist, they're wildly expensive, they work well. And so the birectifier just has a type of pragmatism. And, and to finish the process, just so we're, we're walking people through. So once you've fractionated this distillate into, I think it's eight usually, uh, based on yeah. your website, eight portions, right? And, and I assume that those portions are coming, like you said, through controlling the heat. Uh, yeah. And you're adjusting the heat over time so that the fractional distillate kind of separates, as you mentioned. Yeah. And then the next step in the process is you then take your your human olfactor, as you as you said, uh, sense your nose, and you you smell each of these fractional distillates, which gives you a, a insight into the distillate and what's in it. Is that oh yeah, and okay. you know you you could do some crude chemical analysis, but sometimes you can really arrive at an answer very quickly just with experience. Okay. And you can know in the first fraction what the ethyl acetate is like, mm-hmm. or even, you know, in, in one recent odd case study, we were finding ethyl formate, you know, and the nose knew, you know, I didn't really need a $30,000 chromatography setup and lots of additional consulting to do mm-hmm. that. 
you know, I figured out that my, the distillate had ethyl formate in it, mm-hmm. you know, and then we, when you study countless case studies, you know, what's ordinary, what's extraordinary, mm-hmm. what matches my role model, what doesn't, you know, then when you get to the fourth fraction, you start to see the fusel oil. Well, we just keep finding that no matter what the temperature we ferment under, that the budding yeast has like astoundingly less fusel oil, sorry, the fission yeast right. has astoundingly less fusel oil than the, the budding yeast. The fusel oil controls a lot of distillers' lives. You know, yep. they orientate a lot of decisions around fusel oil. Right. People Getting make rid a of lot it. of capital yeah. investment around reducing fusel oil. You know, we're just finding a simple yeast that cuts it in half. Got it. So, you, so you're... You're. Uh, I'm trying to paint this in a different way. You're. You're. Uh, you're Copernicus, right? You're. You're. Uh, or Galileo, maybe. And you're saying, "Hey, look, guys, everybody in the rum industry, look at this thing that works so well. It's cheap to do, and yet nobody's doing it." Well, you know, just in the rum industry, though, the American rum industry. I don't. I don't know. I get disappointed a lot. Um, but what I found from the West Indies distillers, they're really interested but they kind of have bureaucratic systems that prevent them from exploring it. And the curiosity I find is it's, it's really awesome. But then, you know, you, you hit a type of wall of reality of budgeting for something, having to, you know, maybe we'll do it next year, or we don't know how this is going to fit into our organization because there are all these variables, right. you know, no, no one has like this really agility, like, yeah, let's just, we'll grab one. Hopefully we'll figure out if, if we can make it work or we're really curious about what you're talking about. It's like, oh, we got to go talk to the upper management right. who's focused on whiskey and see, right. you know, or that we have to take and, it now. And those to, would be like the, the, the big spirit conglomerates that own yeah. some of these great West Indies run distilleries, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, but as far as like dealing with the individual distillers, um, they're just always been awesome but then you know we hit some other walls that we haven't been able to penetrate but it it sounds to me like you're saying that you're you're having the bureaucratic uh, methods and things get in place of putting this have there been any arguments scientifically against the process to your knowledge or pretty much every distiller acknowledges this and is just like yeah we just we don't have it in our means to do but we understand where you're going scientifically uh yeah yeah they just seem to understand it, it does answer a lot of questions. And then it just comes into just a bureaucracy and the day to day and many distilleries sort of operate like uh, factories with quotas. And, you know, there's not a lot of uh, research time, you know, who are you going to assign it to, right? I don't know if they really have like interns or student projects, like a couple of the uh, very interesting West Coast distilleries, who I, I communicate with, and uh, they just tell me of just hosting a lot of student projects. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of room for exploration. I just don't really think it exists um, in those systems. But as far as scientifically, yeah, there's, there's people right. seem to enjoy it. So then putting together the final pieces of the puzzle of all this stuff we've talked about. So then you're saying that Arroyo's research and the biorectifier that you've seen now, you've, you're able to use the biorectifier to detect the presence of rum oil, which... Rum oil, when it's there, is usually, if I have this right, you're saying rum oil is produced more by the, the fish and yeast than by regular or budding yeast. Is that correct? Um, you get more rum oil with a fish and yeast 
in Arroyo's high pH process, which Uh, no one commercially practices. That's something that Corey and I, that's our biggest pet project. That's something we'd like to revive and bring to the market. What gets really interesting and confusing about some of the early research is that the fish and yeast, they have this duality. They go from symbiotic partner and often their highest value in the partnership is tolerating bacteria and low fusel oil production and temperature tolerance. Those are extremely valuable. But then what other people and have not seen though and firsthand experience with and, and done the classic homework is pure culture, high pH and seeing what happens when the fission yeast becomes the star of the show and that um, produces the rum oil itself. This would be Arroyo's high pH process, right? Yes. And things get sort of confused because I think that Arroyo didn't have the clear picture. One of the things that you see historically is every researcher, Peyrot, Kaiser, people, you know, that were French, they might have only looked at one side of things. And they were also before the era of pH. And so that they, they didn't have this acute understanding of it. And so that they only saw the fission yeast working in one capacity. And what you see is that there are two mother rooms, and that they have sort of a different approaches one, and I don't call the high acid one low pH, because High acid rum ferments are not really low pH when you compare them to cognac or wine derived things. They have a ton of acidity, but the acidity that they have being mostly lactic acid, they're kind of like tiny acids. Hmm. You know, they add up very significantly in terms of grams, but they don't have a huge influence on pH. And so that's why I don't call them low pH, I call them high acid. But when you go to the high pH method, which there's very little experience with, you find a different ballgame. And the only person to really research it was Arroyo. But one thing that Arroyo's writing never really figures out when he was trying to duplicate the Jamaican work is that the Jamaicans might have gotten the rum oil, the damascenone, the carotene-derived aroma, Mm -hmm. not from their fission yeast. They might have gotten it from their lactic acid bacteria, which is very unique. Is this where some of the stuff around like fruit starters and things like that might come into play? Like I've read, you know, stuff about jackfruit coming into the equation oh. at, at places like Hampton. And um, I have heard that Hampton has historically used the jackfruit, but then they don't remember why. Hmm. So it's kind of like it was part of the process, but at some point. Well, it... the, Hampton has a lot of experiments. Their history is just astounding. Mm hmm you know, and that they have sort of other things going on that they've tried over the years and that they don't always remember why they do it. And that, they, you know, they've changed hands a bit. They've nearly closed a few times. You know, they definitely have some generation gaps, which is why I hope that someday they, um, you know, go a little deeper into their microbiology and um, just shore it up a little bit. I mean, because they definitely have the best story to tell. Could, could it and, be uh, that they do have all this knowledge of things, they're just not telling you because they want to keep um, it their own? I've kind of 
you know, been in contact with people over the years that have kind of said the opposite. Hmm. And this is just what makes rum kind of funny is that a lot of people know how to do things, but not the why. And they definitely can achieve great success, you know, without knowing the why. And well, they, they, they I, say they don't like being probed to know the why because they certainly know the how. And they say, we're just doing fine. You there know? could be different levels of knowing the why, though, right? I mean, well, there, uh, there's you know, the scientific. The hand, then? Well, let's see. We'll, we'll add this one. We'll see if you remember it because it was in a video that they posted mm. that a lot of people didn't catch. Is they add um, pimento berries to the vinegar. I didn't notice that. Yeah. And then, um, you know, one of the weird things about that, uh, well, I was told that, you know, someone there might have believed that it didn't work or do anything. Mm. I don't believe. I think that it, it probably um, skews the bacteria in an aroma positive way. And uh, it probably works. It would just be great to know, you know, why a little more, you know, because when you know why, you start to celebrate the ingenuity that created the process in the first place. You know, so the knowing the why goes back to like celebrating more things and I think elevates the whole process even further. But then one of the other weird things that was in a paper, I didn't put it on the blog, and this always intrigued me. There was a perfume house that bought a stupid quantity of Hampton rum, like an entire freaking barrel. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to do an extremely advanced kind of like chromatography spectroscopy study. Mm -hmm. And they did not think they could do it with, you know, say a single bottle, you know, because the congener fraction is so low. If they wanted to positively examine compounds, they would need a lot of them. So they basically use like a damn barrel. Mm -hmm. Never heard of anything like this happening before. And so they're examining the rum, like that's almost like magnification, you know, because mm -hmm. you're, you're going to strip all the ethanol and water out. And you're going to get like a wad of congeners. Right. What's left? And then you're going to pick them apart. Well, they might, they're identifying compounds that might have come from the pimento berries that were in the vinegar. Hmm. So maybe the you know, role is very important that that part of well, the process no, is. No, planned. no, 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 no. What, what I'm saying, this is just, there's just basically, there's some odd stuff that has happened, odd investigations. Uh huh. Odd, and I would never say that a pimento berry was an additive. But these weirdos, when they took a whole barrel uh -huh. of rum, they might have found like a grain of dust of congener of pimento berry, you know, that, that made it through the distillate. I mean, like, the stories are incredible. I mean, it just gets so fascinating. Why, you, know, like, you, you mentioned not putting that on the blog. Why did you decide not to? Because uh, I thought that yeah, everyone's obsessed with additives in rum making. They mm -hmm. wouldn't know how to understand it. Hmm. You know, I approach it from this like incredible awe, you know, at different levels of the perfume house's investigation where they sacrifice an entire barrel of the greatest rum in the world. And then of the ingenuity of the rum makers who, you know, probably find some antiseptic quality in pimento berries you know, I'm awed at both sides, hmm, yeah. you know, but it might come back to, we talked about perspective early earlier and, and that not a lot of other people have the, the perspective to enjoy it the same way I do, you know, and I, I just, I just come out of it loving the product even more, but um, I don't think people have 
enjoyed discovering fish and yeast the way I have. And then I think that they wanted to sort of jump to some conclusions and haven't really understood the literature, you know, that some of those early investigators, you know, didn't understand pH well, and mm -hmm. that they only looked at one side of the duality of a fission yeast. I was just in awe when it dawned on us there might be two mother rums, two approaches that both centered around a fission yeast and harnessed you know, different sides of it, the sort of symbiotic partner side, and then the, the star of the show. You know, go, going back to all this, you know, looking at it from a, a higher level, I think there's, there's so much of, so much of the time people are told a kind of marketing story about lost knowledge, lost information, uh, being recovered, restored, that kind of thing that I think when they hear, you know, what you've laid mm -hmm. out, kind of like there being a, a rum prophecy, this stuff that, that, you know, got lost and, and it, mm -hmm. it needs to be recovered. I think some skepticism comes in there. Um, what I come back to is things like Arroyo's work. Why do you think those ended up, you know, falling by the wayside? Um, like why wasn't that stuff implemented? Um, economics. And half of his work was a lot of the, the Bacardi process stuff. A lot of those ideas did come from Arroyo's work, utilizing centrifuges before you run it through the continuous still, hmm. ways to prepare molasses. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was used, attendance to yeast. You know, they had libraries of it. I mean, he did work with budding yeasts, but then some of the fun stuff wasn't. And the reason being is after World War II, and, and until recently, people chased Bacardi, they chased commodity spirits, and they ignored fine spirits. We've only seen a fine spirits renaissance lately that makes stuff viable. Yeah. You know, Hampton nearly went out of business a few times. The new Yarmouth distillery was created because of fear that Hampton was going to go out of business. You know, that's why that distillery exists, trying to duplicate the Hampton process. And... You know, many of the other things just haven't, you know, come to fruition. And it's really great that there's a few distilleries that use these things, but it would be great if there was more, if we had a landscape that was as vibrant as single malts. You know, I could mm -hmm. probably name 30 single malts. Right. And I love them all. And it's great. And I would love to be able to name more than seven or 10 great rum distilleries around the world. You know, we'd just like to see a sort of flourishing and then I would like to see, you know, this prophecy, prophecy is a heavy word, but yeah. I am a marketing guy. You know what I mean? But yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. Read, it's funny that you say that because I think the impression people would get from reading your blog is, I mean, so much of it is science and history focused. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's very not, specific. Yeah. yeah. So, so when, when the marketing type stuff comes in, I think that's what makes people kind of be like, wait, wait, what, what a second. What, well, um, Stephen's I mean, talking about prophecies, right? What's that? We're, we, you're con, I'm a consumer. I consume a lot oh, yeah. of yeah. spirits. You know, and I buy a lot of spirits for the restaurant. I'm a very heavy consumer. When I hear that there could be a pineapple diseased rum where you could have rum canes that this black mold grows on that is almost like botrytis in a sauternes, and it creates a unique ester profile. Mm -hmm. And it existed once to make beautiful rum, but it doesn't anymore. I want that. How do you know it doesn't exist, it. though? Huh? How do you know it doesn't exist? Because uh, it doesn't exist. No producer makes it. And I do know of one 
producer that has told me that they're aware of where the mold is. It exists in a certain block of cane fields that they have. This is a South African producer, right? No. No? Okay. I must have misread that on your blog. It's, this doesn't appear on the blog, I don't think. Okay. Mm, um, this is the super secret information. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, well, me trying to stoke this producer into maybe just doing a pilot project. Uh-huh. You know, because the first step is, let's just get some of the shit and, you know, ferment it and see mm-hmm. if anything happens. And, you you know, you can't even mobilize those resources for, you know, a 10-gallon batch to see you know, if something or, or to send it to a university mm-hmm. and say, hey, tell us if this has any value. You know, it, we found that it, historically it's been written about and it produces aroma that is desirable. We got some. We just let it rot. You know, so how do you create little just projects within distillery environments so that they could figure this out? Because they might be sitting on a sauternes, mm-hmm. you know, without knowing it. You know, and then it, you know, that was one of them. And that was in my definition of the Grand Arome rums, you would have a rum that featured probably a fish and yeast plus a complication. And complications were like levels of grandness, like a complication in a chronometer, you know, where that chronometer can tell you the day of the week, the phase mm-hmm. of the moon. Mm-hmm. You know, grand chronometers feature many complications. And complications, we know, make production more complicated. Anything more complicated is higher value, more skill, something we prize, mm-hmm. and that we see that bacteria are complications. So if you juggle them, let's celebrate them. If you, what are, then what are the other possible complications? You know, we know pineapple disease is an eccentric one that was historically made that possibly we could do again. And then in Arroyo's work, we find suaviolins. We have a mildew yeast that grows you know, on the surface of the ferments and produces an ester ethyl tiglate that smells like apples. Hmm. And we learned that he got it from the sap of a tree in a shade grown coffee plantation, which was likely a rubber tree. But we also know through other research around the world, because the perfume industry was interested in ethyl tiglate from a natural source, you can get it on the skin of dragon fruit. And we learn later that related film yeast, mildew yeast, you know, grow in other areas and that it might be um, on spent grains where they metabolize protein to produce aroma. Well, that sounds pretty good. It might be an easy source of extraordinary aroma without adding a lot of liability to a spirit. Well, I want to drink it. (laughs) You know, but we live in the future. We're in the 21st century. We right. have astounding science. We're making fucking vaccines mm-hmm. and shit. How hard <laughs> is it to deliver this? Can anyone, you know, but then we talk about stagnancy of research in America. I think it was in the Atlantic that just wrote an article about how stagnant we are. And um, is this the stagnancy? You know, and then it's weird. It's like, I don't know, Corey isolated that mildew yeast from dragon fruit that he got at the supermarket. And then he sent it to me. I got it growing. I produced the aroma. Well, according to, and, but we found that it did not really grow on molasses easy, or uh, we tried to use apples. Mm -hmm. It luckily was a weak strain. We need more strains or, 
you know, what? I mean, we were just amateurs bringing to life something, you know, well, why can't a commercial producer do it? Could um, it be that you may need some sort of local relationship between, you know, say using something like dragon fruit, for example, would it be important for it to come from nearby wherever the distillery is? No, I mean, you can isolate it once and okay. then have it in your culture collection and create the sort of media to induce it. Mm, gotcha. you know, so mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. part of it is that, that anything happened that we, that we even knew about it from using the history books that we even sought out the fruit, used some basic laboratory techniques, tried it on various media. But then we found that Callum in New Zealand found a far better mildew yeast growing on spent grains. He's had far better luck with it on molasses, a hardier substrate. And I analyzed it. It, it, There's a birectifier profile where I think that I isolate with the birectifier the unique character that he got. You know, and it was also a first draft. You know, we knew we could probably improve upon it, um, do some systematic studies, figure out what nutrition it needs, what pH, what mm-hmm. flatters it. And, you know, we're just bringing something to life. But we just hope that consumers are like, yes, I want that. It's a new flavor. It's, it's you something know, different. Yeah, uh, different mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. not that it's just different, but that's something extraordinary. So you, uh, your, your partners, Corey and Colm, you said... Uh, in New Zealand. You guys are working on this stuff. You're documenting a lot of it and what you're learning on the blog. Um, You're you're actually, you're distilling at a small level rums, incorporating some of these things. What is that all adding up to? Um, I mean, would would you, if you could start your own distillery tomorrow, is that something you would want to do? Uh, Like, what would that look like? Um, We think so. Callum is trying to start a distillery in New Zealand and it's just um, doing a lot of the pilot plant research, filling in a lot of the missing pieces and, you know, trying to get his ducks in a row because mm-hmm. there's a lot of you know questions like you know, even if you create a product that is best in class, will you know, consumers accept it? And, you know, can you be viable without deep pockets? Because um, none of us really have any money. So. <laughs> We <laughs> join the club. That's doing, okay. <laughs> we're always doing a lot with very little. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> well, and you still have um, to spend your money on rum, right? That's what happens to me. I don't know. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I mean, so you know, Callum is sort of first in line for really getting somewhere. Okay. You know, and then we're always having other conversations about distilleries. Me coming from a hospitality background, I feel that a distillery, you know, should have an intense tasting room that is like a. Manhattan cocktail bar. Yeah. And yeah. it should be this like rich environment that you don't go to once. You could be a regular there. Sure. And you're going to be entertained. And, you know, it's going to create um, a lot of stability for the business and help with renown. You know, we're always talking about that kind of thing. You know, I'd love to do something in Philadelphia. This is such an interesting city where the real estate still makes it where you could probably have a distillery exist downtown, you know, or in a, in a densely populated area where you can draw a lot of business, even from the the local community, you know, and then Corey and I, when we try to conceive what we would want to do, it's either to be very small scale garagists, but then possibly uh, consulting where, you know, we don't really need to create some brand new place from scratch. You know, we're often like, we would rather influence positively, a heritage place 
and and just have them just start experimenting and and possibly being introduced to fission yeasts, you know, and possibly just um, you know doing it in in a beautiful distillery with an incredible team that already exists, and it, it might be more um, fulfilling than trying to originate something from scratch. You know, so if we had a small distillery, it might only have pilot plant scale equipment. And then if we really create something wonderful, we would try to, you know, farm it out and and establish it at a larger plant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are ideas that have, you know, crossed, you know, our minds. And, um, you know, we just really like participating in, in the rum community. We've had so much fun without really even getting anywhere. And uh, we just want to make sure if we do something that we have a really good time. And so many people have started with investors that have falling outs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we don't really want anything like that to happen. And we just want to um, really enjoy what we do and, and, and just bring things to life and, I don't know, make enough money. Drink rum. We don't want to get rich. <laughs> we just want to make enough money to do this. <laughs> right. You know, and... Um, uh, that's that's sort of like uh, our approach. Just make sure that you're yeah. always having fun. I just want to be rich enough to have one of every rum. <laughs> Does that work? One of every every single one. I mean, and a uh, house big enough to put them in. Someday, I, I, yeah, basically, I don't. I don't really collect stuff. I I drink stuff, and then it, I just I just start analyzing it. I mean, I have um, uh, rivers. Just uh, yeah ended up here mm-hmm. as a gift to be analyzed and you analyze uh, all these as well you like you yeah, every single rum that comes into your house do you analyze it not every single rum i mean it's an astounding time commitment yeah but i'm always hoping to lay down a foundation that might not be recognized initially but is still a foundation and people use it the on my blog some weird phenomenon is that no one starts reading posts. They blow up three years later, always three <laughs> years later, you know, and people start caring about an idea later, yeah. you know? And so all these case studies that I put crazy amount of hours into, I hope that they, they just really create a foundation for the next generation of distilling and that, you know, all consumers, everybody will be able to reap the benefits eventually. Yeah. Um, and that we'll also be able to celebrate a lot of things that previously happened, you know, celebrating the incredible work of, you know, Professor Farazmane, of Arroyo, of, you know, Carl Miko. Yeah. And then I, I really want to know the first names of a lot of people that created marks in the Jamaican distilleries. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, and, we didn't even really touch on the series you did on Long Pond recently, but I would encourage anyone who is, you know, interested in rum history, there was a, a series, and we'll link to it in the show notes that Stephen did, based on the large collection of papers you came into, uh, came across, and were able to digitize some of them and kind of publish your takeaways telling the, it was kind of like what, the the 50s, 60s era yeah, of Long Pond? And, um you know, Seagram's was involved yeah. with Long Pond and um, their internal corporate documents. They were among what I singled out from probably 3000 pages I looked at. Mm-hmm. And most of the other pages were legal things about corporate formations and bank accounts. And, Ugh. you know, it was... Uh, you deserve yeah. a medal just for sifting through that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> and even the physical format was a little wild. And, you know, I was able to you know, tell this story in between all this stuff 
And then, you know, I'm sharing them with a couple distillers and people I know. And they're like, wow, we didn't know any of this. <laughs> you know, and what was really funny is like. Um, Refresh my memory on how you came across those. Uh, trickery. Trickery. <laughs> is that as and specific as you that. can be? <laughs> you remember there was this guy named Kevin Mitnick? I don't, I don't recall that name. No, but we'll believe you. Famous hacker. Uh, I'm not oh. familiar. Oh, Okay. I, I did just rewatch The Matrix for the first time in like 20 years, though. So, <laughs> hackers on the brain. Uh, you know, a little trickery. People didn't know what they had. Interesting. Had huh. And then what was funny is that um, they're trying to restart the Long Pond Distillery. Right. Right. Well, they had nothing to do with that. It's just coincidence. Wait, I'm I'm confused. Well, some people have thought that the papers existed because of some marketing thing related to the Long Pond Distillery. I gotcha. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> nope. Um, it just, I don't know, I just had them. I just had fun with them. And, uh, you know, hopefully they'll they will feed some really wonderful books on rum. You know, Dave Broom's next wonderful book. And, um, you know, teach us more about marks and timelines. There's so many things in there that can inform the GI debates. The cooperage, how cooperage was a train wreck, how there's not a was not an established cooperage tradition. There, there's so much in there. It's just very, very cool. Hmm. Uh, yeah. But I mean, it's it, and they're restarting that distillery, so we're going to have so much fun eventually consuming a product that came from that heritage. And then I didn't really know a damn thing about Long Pond. Hmm. You know, there wasn't a lot of information out there. I never got invited there. Uh, many people have gone on tours, um, you know, hosted by um, distillers mm-hmm. uh, for writing like a review kind of blog. I don't do a review kind of blog. Right. Um, so I, I was not invited. And so, you know, when I was trying to figure out what Long Pond was all about, that's what I'm finding. You know, people that went on paid tours. I was not one of them. Uh, but I think I came up with some of the coolest work that is going to um, get people really excited about the distillery. I am. Well, there's a, there's always a lot going on in rum. And um, I think your blog for me has been a source of just always, anytime I go there, I find something that is going to, uh, yeah, thought provoking, Mm -hmm. stoke my curiosity a little bit. Um, I don't always fully understand everything I read. Wasn't the best science student growing up, but you do a great job of kind of like breaking it down and, uh, you know, explaining the significance of stuff and, and things like that. So, um, I hope, I hope people listening will, uh, will, like I said, we'll put all kinds of links in the show notes and stuff to, uh, to, to various articles and things mentioned, on here. Um, I can't promise I will remember to link to every single thing, but I'll try to point <laughs> people in the right directions. Um, but before we wrap up, uh, we do have a tradition on the show. It's uh, a final segment that we call the rapid fire segment. So unlike the uh, very big picture questions with uh, answers that could have filled entire episodes like we've been doing. These are short, quick answers intended to have a little bit of fun at the end of the show. Uh, My co-host, John, is the steward of this segment on the show. (laughs) And if you are up for it, uh, I will have him tell you about that now. Cool. Yeah. (laughs) All right. 
So what we're going to try to do is get through as many of these as we can in exactly 60 seconds. So your goal is to either, it's sometimes this is either or, or a short answer format as best you can make it. Whatever answer you have, there's no wrong answers. All right. All right. So Will, you're going to put uh, 60 seconds on? Yep. I've got 60 seconds and go. All right. Neat or on the rocks? Neat. Column, pot, or blend? Pot. Aged or unaged rum? Both. <laughs> Good answer. Molasses or cane juice? Both. Okay. Fish and yeast or budding yeast? Fish and yeast. You gotta, you gotta put some one easy coming. ones in yep. there. Uh, Boston or Philadelphia? Philadelphia. Oh, all right. This is a healthy Boston. I love this place. <laughs> yes. Other than Boston Apothecary, what is one of your favorite rum-related websites? Uh, um... <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> just, just yours. Um, I never. I just am too. My head is down in dumb translations. I don't know. What to all right. You. One of your favorite discoveries on the blog was the legendary 1843 distill off in Jamaica between W. F. White House, the man you had described as an interloping huckster, Mister O'Keefe. You said if there were a film adaption of this epic, Daniel Day Lewis would play White House. So who do you have playing O'Keefe? Steve Buscemi. That's what I was uh, thinking. Nice. I like it. All right. <laughs> All right. That's time, by the way. Oh, man. Uh, that's right. so funny because uh, as I was looking at that question before we started the interview, I was like, who would I pick? And I was like, Steve Buscemi would be great for that. So, yeah. Yeah. Interloping Huckster. That description just conjures uh, images of Steve Buscemi, I think. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Stephen, thanks for taking the time to do this. I think this is a, a, a pretty unique interview among the ones yeah. that we've done so far, which isn't surprising because I think you've created a unique little corner of the internet with Boston Apothecary. And uh, yeah, before we go, it, in, anything we didn't get to, I know, I know um, we, one thing you had mentioned wanting to talk about was the single glass usage issue in spirits right now, which I do think is really important. And you wrote kind of a two-part series on that called Bulk Spirits Futurism which I would really encourage people to read. Um, for me, like super thought-provoking from a standpoint of sustainability and environmental issues in rum. And John and I argue so much about bottles all the time on this show because we have different aesthetic preferences about them. There's the a right lot one that, and the wrong one. That, that could have been an entire episode to talk about that. So I'd encourage people to check that out. But um, yeah, before we wrap up, any anything else to add? Oh, about that topic. I mean, anything that's a topic yeah. people are going to yeah. hear about. Single-use glass is so astoundingly wasteful. The, yeah. the carbon yeah. burden is higher than that of the uh, the distillate itself, often by many multiples. You know, when glass should weigh maybe 500 grams per liter bottle, you got people out there with 800 gram bottles. They're nearly twice as heavy as they should be, and we and we simply immediately throw them away. And it's also a, a colossal expense. The bottles can cost uh, very significantly relative to your purchase, you know, and I buy rum. I don't buy rum bottles, mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, I try to get people interested in using more commodity weight glass and um, just, you know, don't fall into the trap of, of the, of the heavy bottles to, to think you have a premium product, right? You know, save that money for research. Call me. <laughs> 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 and, uh, you know, you're going to hear more about this topic. It's very significant. So yeah. yeah. 
Yep. I, I think it was Victor Hugo who said, nothing is more powerful than an idea whose time has come, right? Yeah. So I think that and many others, and if, if nothing else, Stephen, you're certainly a man with a bunch of ideas. So I uh, really appreciate you sharing those with us too and taking your time out. So thank you so much for that. Cool. Great to be here. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone, to another episode of the Rumcast. Like I said throughout the episode, going to try to link to as many relevant connected articles on Boston Apothecary as possible in the show notes of this episode, which you can see in your podcast player. Or if you go to the Rumcast website, rumcast.com and go to the episode, they're all listed out there. So check that out when you get a chance. And uh, John, where can people find us to uh, to engage in all sorts of, of amazing, incredible ways on social media right now? We are everywhere, Will. <laughs> everywhere. We are taking over the social media atmosphere at the Rumcast for Instagram and Facebook. You can also find us at, at the Rumcast for Twitter. And we're also on YouTube. So if you use YouTube to get your content, that's a place to do it. And uh, we would love it when people comment and they get in touch with us uh, through social media for anything and anything that they've heard and want to discuss further. In fact, uh, Will, I did want to make a quick correction. Olson contacted us and said, hey, just a few episodes back, we had referred to, or I think it was me that re- referred to a Bacardi Heritage 1909 product as unaged and of course that was a mistake uh, it is aged for 18 months in american oak barrels and then later charcoal filtered hence right. being colorless just wanted to make that quick correction and a, and a shout out to olson for figuring that out and saying hey so uh, thanks to olson for that and and thank you all for for every comment we've received a bunch more comments and a bunch of reviews we're will we're actually closing in on 100 reviews i know it's incredible um and honestly like really like thank you so much to everyone who's yeah. done that it really is gratifying to see and it does like like we always say it helps people find the show so really do appreciate that uh can't can't thank you guys enough yeah so if you haven't reviewed yet and you listen to this podcast for this long we would ask that you please just give us a quick review we're we're doing the drive for 100 let's see if we can get the drive there by, for 100 the drive for 100 uh reviews would be awesome to see that happen sometime soon so uh, again thank you all for listening and thank you all so much and we hope to see you online and if not in person maybe at some point in 2022 yeah sounds good 